Uh, for our first message today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, The Ethics of Faith and Our, uh, and our Identity. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful, as it always is, to be here with you on this uh, wonderful, beautiful day that we are having, God's Sabbath day, a time to come together, as we all know, and take a break from, you know, we, we say this so much, so it's so cliche to get up here and, and say these things as speakers. I know I've done it so many times. It's almost like clockwork. It's just a habit, something that comes out of my my mouth. And although I do believe that I've always meant it, but for some reason there's just something about what's been going on lately and all the craziness that makes it just have a, just a little bit more meaning to it. Just to be able to take a pause, to uh, leave the world, to get out of the world, just to, to put all that stuff that's going on on hold, whether it be in our jobs, whether it be other things that we're dealing with in our life, uh, and the thing, other things that are going on, and just take a pause and just to come and just to reflect and worship together and to, uh, to, to be with our extended family because we all here are an extended family and to just be able to rejoice in the amazing promises and gifts and blessings that God has given all of us. So as Reggie mentioned, the title of this message is The Ethics of Faith in Our Identity. But this is a part of a greater series that I am starting today that's going to be for the next 10 or so messages entitled The Ethics of Faith, a study on the book or the letter of the Apostle James, of James. Now, that might sound like a lot. Well, James, it's going to take us a little while to get through it. And so, one of the reasons that I picked this particular text or this book or this letter was actually something that has gone back probably about three years. I've been thinking about trying to do a sermon series on this letter, this letter of James. And it's very interesting because as I was researching the book of James and I was looking for different resources that I have accumulated over the last three years, to do an exhaustive study and a sermon series on the letter of James. There's many different things that I have learned, but I think that what prompted me the most to begin 2017, to really begin to stay on this particular series in the book of James is just simply because of what I have been observing in our society. The book of James is about faith. The book of James is about ethics, our behavior, about our faith being proven to be genuine faith because we are acting upon it. You know, I've always enjoyed this letter. I've always felt that this letter has a lot of encouragement. And a lot of it is because it's very basic. It's basic things that sometimes we overlook as we're trying to maybe go for maybe the bigger concepts. The letter of James has an interesting history. If you know anything about the history of the canon of the New Testament, you know that there was no in particular like date. This is when they said, okay, here's the canon. Here's the 27 books that should be in the New Testament. We'll stamp our approval on it. Done. The 27 documents that we have compiled in this book right here that's called the New Testament had an interesting history. We know that early on, most of all of these books were circulated and were looked upon as authoritative. 
but not everyone universally agreed upon which book should be in the New Testament from the very beginning. It had kind of an interesting history. One thing we do know, most historians, or shall I say evangelical historians, do say that all 27 of these books do go back to one of, one of two things, to the first century and to one of the original apostles of Jesus. In other, in other words, someone who witnessed the actual resurrected Jesus. Now, I want to read you a little quote. Because the letter of James has had a disputed history in the history of Christianity. This comes from Bob Deffenbaugh, who has wrote a series of expositional articles on a series on James. And I just was struck when I read this because he kind of puts it succinctly. Some things that maybe you have known or already know, but he puts it in an interesting way. He says, prior to 1539, if one had said, turn with me to the first chapter of the book of James, there would have been a great rustling of pages in the congregation with many puzzled looks. Up until that time, you would not have found the book where it is today in any English translation. Indeed, you would not have found the book of James included among the New Testament books at all. This is because it was hidden away at the very back of the English Bible along with Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation. The obscure placement of this book is indicative of the initial reluctance the early church had accepting it and several other books into the canon of Scripture. Perhaps the greatest reason for this delay was due to the question of its authorship. Books that were most readily accepted into the New Testament canon were those written by apostles whose doctrine and teaching accorded with other writings of the New Testament and that were commonly regarded as scripture by the churches as a whole. Now we do know that during this time of Martin Luther's life, a thousand years or so before this, but more than a thousand years, the, the, the book of James was indeed included into the 27 documents that became known as the New Testament canon. But through the Reformation, and that's who Martin Luther, the period that he came out of, if you don't know who Martin Luther is, Martin Luther was the uh, the, the founder of what was known as a movement called the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, tradition says that he nailed 95 objections called theses uh, on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, objecting to certain practices of the Roman Catholic Church and thus igniting what became known as the uh, Protestant Reformation. And so he's looked at as the father of the Protestant Reformation, where essentially you had the Roman Catholic Church, which was pretty much a monolithic religion, the only denomination of Christianity within Western Europe, the only outside denomination was the Greek Orthodox Church in the East, and there, from that point forward, began the process to us having many different flavors and splints and denominations of Christianity. Martin Luther called the book of James a book of straw. And he did so because in his mind, he felt like the book did not have much gospel tone to it. It did not really accord a lot, you know. His mind was, I'm not going to throw it out. I'm going to include it as a part of the canon. But I'm not going to allow it to be on par with the books of Paul. Or on par with the gospels. Or even the epistles of John. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And so we see that he's very influential in this because even William Tyndale, when he translates his English Bible, he puts the book of James at the end among some of the other ones that were also questionable, being very influenced by Martin Luther. Interestingly, though, Ulrich Zwingli, 
the Swiss reformer, and John Calvin, the French reformer, both accepted the book of James without controversy. So, in looking at this letter, and looking at the history of this letter, it is interesting because you can go and do a Google search right now, and you will find a ton of material from Christian churches, from Christian denominations that all are doing series or have done a series on the letter of James. Despite the early church's reluctance to accept the letter to James in the New Testament and even the reformers' reluctance to accept or put James on the same authoritative stand as the other writings of the New Testament. Despite that, today we have a book that is very, very popular among many Christian denominations. And so as we begin this message today, as we begin this series, The Ethics of Faith, what I want to look at is first just to kind of give us a little background of what this letter is all about, the situation that was going on, and above all else, who exactly was it that wrote this letter? Because it is something that is not unanimously agreed upon. So before I do that, I have three objectives that I want to point out. Number one, I want us to identify the author of James and give a brief biographical sketch on who this individual was. Secondly, I want to look at the date, occasion, audience, and purpose of the letter of James. Third, I have two main points for us today that we can maybe glean just from the first book of the first chapter of the letter of James. So with that, let's look at that biographical sketch. Now, most of us have probably assumed that the letter of James was written by a person named James. That's actually what I believe, and most of you probably believe that as well. That's because the letter has traditionally been attributed to the author of James, which actually it's quoted as from James, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This James is of question, though, because we have four different individuals with the name James that are in the New Testament. Some have actually even argued that there were more James. And of course, just to point this out real quick, James is the Greek version of the word or the name Jacob. So Jacob was probably the correct name in the Aramaic slash Hebrew. In the Greek, though, it has come to us as, as, as James. So the first James that we know of in the New Testament is James, the father of Judas. This is not the father of Judas Iscariot, but this is a father of another Judas who was a disciple, or not a disciple, but Judas was a disciple. But this figure was very obscure. We don't know much about this individual. You can look at Luke, the sixth chapter, verse 16, eight, Acts, the first chapter, verse 13. Those are where this particular James is cited in the New Testament. The second James that we know of is James, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew 10, verse 3, Mark 3, through eight, uh, verse 18, and there's many other passages where we see this uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, who is a disciple and an apostle, but is obscure. We don't know much about this individual outside of him being listed among the disciples and the apostles in the New Testament. In other words, there's no narrative in particular about what this individual did. The third James that we know of is a little bit more common to us. This is James, the son of Zebedee, and brother of John. We know a lot about the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Very known individual, but unfortunately, he was killed. He was martyred uh, by Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa I, probably somewhere around the year 
44 AD or at least before the spring of 44 AD. And this is recorded in the book of Acts, Acts the 12th chapter, verse 2. The traditional view of the book of James and the author and the person who wrote this letter, though, was that fourth James. The James, the Lord's brother, also known in history as James the Just. This is the traditional view of James, the letter of James' authorship. So what do we know about this individual? What do we know about this individual named James the Just? And I'll get to why he's called James the Just in a minute or James the brother of Jesus. Referring to this individual, we know that the gospel records, just two of them, Matthew the 13th chapter, verse 55, and Mark 6, 3, are the only two places that we see in the gospels that James, the brother of Jesus, is mentioned. But somewhere after Pentecost, Jesus rose from the dead. He went and he told his disciples, and now they're apostles, the mission in which they are to complete. Somewhere after that, this individual who was known as the Lord's brother, took on a pretty prominent role in the early church. We see in Acts, the 12th chapter, 15, verse 20, uh, chapter 21, even 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul, when he talks about how he met with some of the leading apostles in Jerusalem, after he was converted, he was probably referring to James, the Lord's brother, not James, the son of Zebedee. And so we see that this individual Although he does not seem to be a follower, one of the disciples of his brother, Jesus, we know that later after Jesus was resurrected, he did become a prominent believer uh, to the point where he was looked at as the Jerusalem church leader, the leader of the Jerusalem church. This James is also a historically confirmed individual. And let me explain what that means. This individual is not just mentioned in the New Testament. There is historical records specifically like Josephus and his... Jewish antiquities that mentions James and his particular martyrdom uh, by stoning by, by one of the high priests during his period of time. So we see Josephus cite this individual, but we also see Eusebius, who was an early church historian after the New Testament times, but the earliest uh, compiled church history that we have outside of the New Testament, if you say outside of the book of Acts, was done by a person by the name of Eusebius and it was his ecclesiastical history. So, as I mentioned, some argue against the authorship of this James. There's a few reasons why they possibly try to argue against James being uh, not the author, the James that we think of not the author of this letter. One of them is the Greek is too polished, and I think... Okay, yeah. I couldn't see it up there. I was just making sure he had it going on back there. So one of the arguments is that the Greek's just too polished. Historians notice, uh, textual critics know, that James's Greek is very polished. It's very sophisticated. The argument is, is that a Galilean, we know Jesus was from Galilee, okay, up there north, north of Judea and Samaria. And we know that now he is in a place of Jerusalem, which is in Judea. The idea is that there's no way that a Galilean Jew could have been that polished in Greek. And so therefore the argument is that lends itself to an unlikelihood that this individual, James, the Galilean Jew, who's still living in Jerusalem, not going out in the diaspora or like Paul is into the other part of the world and coming into contact with many different Greek and Gentile people, probably could not have written this letter. We know now that there was a lot more contact between Jews living in Galilee and even Palestine down in the south of Judea than we once thought. 
And so therefore, there was a lot of interaction between Greeks and Galilean Jews that maybe once was understood. And therefore, there could have been uh, a lot of learning on the part of people like James and be able to write in a uh, somewhat sophisticated style of Greek as it was written. The second reason that some do not believe that James the just or James the brother of the Lord wrote this uh, letter was because he does not identify himself as Jesus' brother, an apostle, or the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so people say, well, if this was James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, why would he not identify himself with some more specificities? Okay, some more specifics. Uh, why wouldn't he cite just to, you know, make himself, this is me. Hey, this is an authoritative letter because it's coming from me. This prominent individual that's the brother of Jesus by the flesh, uh, but is also the leader of the Jerusalem church. So that's another reason that people believe that uh, this possibly was not written by James the just. Now, the counter argument to that is rather simple. That's because the prominence, there's two things, the prominence of James would not have necessarily been something that he would have had to do. He would not have had to, you know, just his name, people knew who he was, people knew his authority, people knew of his leadership, and he wouldn't need to identify himself as the leader of the Jerusalem church. The third reason seems to be the interacting with Pauline thought, that is the teachings of Paul, which would point to this letter possibly having to be written later than James would have been alive. In other words, we know that James died in somewhere around 62 AD according to Josephus. He was martyred, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago. The argument is, is that James, the letter, the author of this book, seems to be interacting with Paul's teachings. Teachings that didn't develop until a little bit later, until a period of time that this James could not have wrote, written about. And so that is one of the arguments, but despite that, most historians uh, traditionally have looked at James uh, being the traditional author, being the, the brother of the Lord, the James the Just. So those are just a few arguments against the traditional view. I, for one, personally believe that the evidence is very strong for James the Just, uh, the, the Lord's brother, as being the author of this text, and there's several reasons for that. And maybe interdispersed as a part of this series, we're not trying, that's not our really point, is to not go through a thorough understanding of the background and the different, you know, historical debates about this letter, but rather just the content. There might be some uh, other references that I might present in the process of this series. So, most historians, as I mentioned, though, do believe that James, the brother of Jesus, uh, James the Just, also known later on by church fathers, they called him James the Just, as being the one who penned this letter. And in fact, another thing that contributes to the uh, evidence that James was indeed the author was because even though the letter was disputed early on, one of the criteria that was used in selecting the New Testament texts was, there was four things, but one of the primary things was identification with an apostle. And so if you read the New Testament books, all of them have traditionally been associated with an apostle that had seen the risen Jesus, the risen Lord. And so you have Matthew and John, who were looked at as apostles, but then you have Mark and Luke. And Mark is associated with Peter as a traveling companion of Peter. Yes, he was originally a traveling companion of Paul, but later on we see that he is associated with Peter. 
And so his letter is authoritative and looked at as being associated with the Apostle Peter. Uh, Luke, of course, is associated with the Apostle Paul. And Hebrews, although historically people have believed that Paul wrote Hebrews, uh, the consensus is now that Paul did not write Hebrews, but rather one of his companions, someone who was in his circle that was a part of his association. So therefore, it has apostolic authority. So what I'm getting at is that the fact that uh, James was a, a, a accepted into the canon, even though there were some disputes about some of those letters that maybe there was unsureness about, because it was accepted, though, in that time frame when they were looking at the New Testament documents, does show that we have an early attestment that it does have a relationship to an apostle, which the best one who fits was James. So... That is why uh, I believe that James, the just, was the author of this letter. So let's look at three other things before we kind of look at those first two main points starting this series. The date, the audience, and the occasion. The date, the audience, and the occasion. So as I mentioned before, James died uh, somewhere around 62 AD. Uh, and he was martyred and he was stoned to death by, you know, tradition says that he was stoned to death. That's what we have from uh, certain individuals that wrote early on. And so because of that date, that tells us that it must have been somewhere before 62 AD that this letter came into existence. But historians also cite another date that tends to kind of maybe be a possible marker point as well. And that is 48 or 49 AD when what was known as the Jerusalem Conference took place. Maybe you've read Acts the 15th chapter before where all of the apostles and all the church leaders, including James who presided over this conference, came together and had questions about uh, what to do with uh, circumcision and law keeping and things like that. And of course we know that it's been somewhat under, misunderstood throughout history. But the fact that James does not mention this particular conference may lend some credence to it being before 48 or 49 AD. Therefore making it somewhere in the mid 40s and making it among one of the earliest New, Te New Testament documents that was written. The two New Testament documents that are kind of disputed and go back and forth on which one was written first was the book of Galatians and the book of uh, James, and possibly 1 Thessalonians as well. And so somewhere in the mid-40s seems to be kind of a, uh, a date where a lot of people place this document, this letter of James being written. But we could say before 62 AD, no matter what, because that was the date in which he uh, was martyred. The audience is actually cited in the first verse. It says, to the 12 tribes in dispersion. That's chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and so, therefore, many people think that the audience, the people that James was ha having in mind when he wrote, was Jewish Christians. Now, that word dispersion comes from uh, the word diaspora. Maybe you've heard of what the Jewish diaspora is. Just to kind of go back and just to set this up, uh, we know that in 586 B.C., the Babylonians finally did their final destruction to Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and they took into captivity Jews to the city of Babylon. Not all Jews, but many of them, specifically ones that were talented. And then years later, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. And when they were defeated by the Persians, Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, 
uh, he allowed the Jews, those who chose to, to return back home and to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city walls, and, and rebuild their life, even though they were now going to be under the auspices of the Persian Empire. What we know is, is that whenever they were allowed to come back home, many Jews did not. Some did, but many did not. And so even when we read the New Testament, what we see, like on things like the, the day of Pentecost, we see Jews coming from all over the different parts of the Roman world. There were many Jews that were living in different parts of the world outside of Palestine. And so this tends to be where this individual, James, tends to be writing to. Jews that were living outside of Palestine. This is another reason why James possibly has been disputed or maybe not looked upon as favorably by some because they view it as being a book that's not universal. It's really just meant to, for Jews that were, uh, that were Christian and, and not to the wider Christian world. There's another way of looking at this though. And I tend to believe that the more evidence is, is that he's really talking to Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine. But another way of looking at this is possibly he's referring to uh, the, the tribes dispersed in a metaphorical sense. He's taking on kind of the language of First Peter that talks about how the church is now the real spiritual Israel of God. And he's associating the 12 tribes with just any Christians out there that are living in uh, Gentile or pagan societies where they're maybe having persecution or they're experiencing trials or they're experiencing different issues. Nevertheless, we know that he's writing to people outside of the land of Palestine and obviously those who have a belief, a faith, and a profession in Jesus Christ as being the Savior. So you have the third thing, the occasion. The occasion. Why did James write this letter? What was the purpose? Why, what, what prompted him? Well, there's a lot of different things that seem to have been going on, which we will be getting into uh, in this series. One of them was, is there was obviously some people that were having persecution. Some maybe were having trials or having difficulty, uh, difficulties in their life, whether it be something that was health related, something that was brought on upon by individuals that were maybe persecuting them. We do not know. But what we do know is there seems to be a possibility that people, not only were there trials and were other things going on, but there was possibly divisions that were beginning in different Christian communities. Divisions. There was poor and rich controversies possibly. There were divisions that were going on to the point where some people were, were, were not living up to their faith anymore. They were starting to become worldly. Maybe they were becoming enamored with things going on. Now, we know the people, the individuals in the 40s and in the 50s and 60s who were in control. It was still the Romans. The Roman Empire still had control over this area. One of them was Caligula and another one of them was Claudius. Caligula was known as being kind of a crazy emperor. Historians have debated over this, but one of the things that he's traditionally known for doing was having this obsession with his horse to the point where some historians have actually uh, cited a tradition that says that he attempted to appoint his horse, his stallion, to the consul. 
And so we don't know if this is true. It might not be true at all. It might be just something that became a fantasy, it became a tale, and just somehow evolved. But what we do know is that Roman emperors were notorious for doing crazy things sometimes, not so much because they were crazy, but rather it was a way of telling the Senate and the consul, your job is meaningless. An animal could do it. There was another emperor that came right after him. And by the way, also Caligula, he was an individual that attempted to erect a statue of himself in the Jewish temple, but died before he brought that law to pass. He's the one that is looked at sometimes as the beginning of the imperial cult worship. Roman emperors believed themselves to be very powerful. They believed themselves to be almost deity level. But Caligula was the one that possibly started getting the belief that before even emperors died, they were divine and were worthy of worship. The next emperor that came was Caligula. And Caligula, not Caligula, Claudius. Claudius was the individual that does have some New Testament relation because we know that there was a fire that broke out. There was some controversy that broke out in Rome. And who were the scapegoats? Christians. And so we have historical records of these individuals known as Christians, Christus, as sometimes some of the texts or translations call it. And they both, basically, they hosted out all of the Christians out of Rome and there began this persecution. And many of them were actually killed. They were killed, they were put on crosses, and whenever night came, they were set on fire so everyone could see them, and it was a spectacle. So, we don't know if that has any effect on the audience and the situations that the uh, audience of James is going through. Uh, but, it is a possibility because those were some of the things that were going on during uh, the time period that James seems to be writing this letter. Now, the theme. The theme is simple. Living out one's faith, literally being a doer. That's actually where that comes from, is the letter of James. Verse, or chapter 1, verse 22. Be a doer, not a hearer only. And so that's why I've entitled this series, The Ethics of Faith. You could say that the letter of James is a practical guide on how to go about your Christian conduct. Too often in our world, we see a lot of people that profess faith, but they don't act upon it. Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Do it all the time. I feel Christ daily. But sometimes we get so wrapped in our lives, we get so wrapped in other things, we start identifying with particular maybe uh, political stances, we start identifying with uh, maybe our job or other things that we stop really living the faith. It's just this profession that comes out of her mouth and drops. Or it's just this, you know, thinking, oh, I know, I know Jesus is Lord. I know that he saved me. But do we live like that is the question. And so I think this is what James is trying to do. He's trying to basically talk about a faith that acts, a faith that obeys. So in this, I have two quick main points, and I think my next slide, it just kind of shows you a quick little rundown of some of the themes in the letter of James. Uh, one of the themes is trials, obedience, justice, good works, speech, wisdom, humility, patience, prayer. All of those are themes that we are going to explore in this series. Things that we all go through, things that are practical situations that this life brings us, and the, and the Word of God has some encouragement for. So my first main point today, 
And I think I might have had a map in there. I don't know. Did I have a map in there? This just shows you basically the Roman world and the disbursement of where Jerusalem is right up here. And all these different parts, you'd have pockets of Jews that were living during this period of time. So I uh, apologize for skipping over that really quick. So my first main point is make sure your identity is in Jesus Christ and God the Father. Make sure that your identity is in Jesus Christ and God the Father. The very first verse of James opens up with James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That's what we see for Mr. James here. And what's interesting is the fact that what we already talked about in discussing who wrote this letter was that this individual, James, failed to identify himself in any way other than a bondservant of Jesus and the Lord God the Father. He didn't say, James, the head of the Jerusalem church, James, an apostle, something that held weight, by the way, when you claim that you were an apostle, James, the brother of Jesus, the individual that you worship and who is the Son of God, he's my brother. He didn't do any of that, but rather just simply identified himself as a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If this letter is the individual's letter, James the Just, James the brother of Jesus, as we just have argued, or I have argued, Let's just think about the lessons that could possibly provide me and you and all of us living in this world. The question of where or who do we identify with? What do I, we identify with? If we were to die, which we're going to, by the way, what do we want to be known for? You know, you always see those pictures of, you know, tombstones that says so-and-so, beloved brother or sister or father or whatever. And those are all good well. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when someone thinks of you as an individual, where do they want, what do you want them to think? What do you want them to picture? What do you want? Do you want them to picture and identify you with maybe your human titles? Maybe you have a PhD, a, you know, an MD, or maybe you're some hotshot lawyer. Maybe you're uh, a CEO of this company. Maybe you want to, uh, the people you associate with, you, you really run with a, a really uh, up there cloud, a really affluent crowd and people. You want to be identified with your hobbies, your political position. Of course, all of these can be all good and well. There's nothing wrong with having associations with people. I mean, obviously, that's what we're supposed to do. We're humans. We interact with people. We have jobs, and we want to be effective at our jobs, and we want to be good at our jobs and appreciated because you do a good job and you work hard. You want to be a good family member, whether you be a, a husband, wife, daughter, son, uncle, aunt, cousin, whatever it be, you want to be loved by your family, and you, there's nothing wrong with identifying with your family and having pride that you live in a blessed family, and of course, you always give glory to God with that, but it's interesting because although many have throughout the years tried to talk about how James has some con conflict with the Apostle Paul, I'm reminded of Colossians 3, verse 1 through 3, and looking at this, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
I think that we see a possible example of that in looking at how James opens up his letter. Not associating himself with all these different things that might have made him uh, maybe look better, at least in a human perspective. And some have actually claimed that James was a, a synonymous letter, which would be strange because if you were going to write a synonymous letter and claim it was someone, someone else's, you would do that because you want, to, uh, you want your, your writing to be authoritative. And you would uh, make it authoritative by basically claiming, ah, Paul, the apostle uh, of Jesus. That would be authoritative. I mean, just by saying James would be strange. So if it was synonymously written, then you probably would have seen someone say, James, brother of Jesus, an apostle, leader of the Jerusalem church, and stack up all of the different credentials to make his letter seem more uh, uh, authoritarian, authoritative. So I just got a little quick illustration. We're going to look at our second main point, and then we'll be done for the day on this particular first little introduction to this series. We know that we usually reflect several things in life. We reflect our mother and fathers, both in appearance as well as in habits oftentimes. We reflect the environment we live in, uh, as, such as the people that we associate with, uh, maybe the particular job that we have. Uh, our environment uh, affects the people that we are, whether good or bad. And we sometimes have to work against that. Uh, because of that, we have to ask the question, do we reflect Jesus Christ because of our interaction with him? Because we have identified with him. Because we have realized that all the things, the titles, the hobbies, uh, the things that you know, we might really like in life, all of that stuff is earthly and perishable. And so my first main point was to make sure your identification is in Christ Jesus and God our Father. And how do we do that? Our second main point. True identification with God the Father and Jesus Christ comes and means bond servitude. And I said bond servitude instead of service or servant because I really want to capture the English word that's used here to translate the Greek word what's known as doulos. Doulos is a word that most English translations translates as slave. And of course, that was very common in the first century during this period of time. It's very negative connotation today because of the history that we have had especially in countries in the West, like the United States and South America and different countries of that nature, and of course countries in uh, Western Europe, as well as other places. But the word doulos in our New King James and King James versions, if you use one of those versions, I'm using the New King James version, uses the word bondservant to translate this particular passage. And what's unique about this word is, is that it kind of brings out the idea of one who has actively chosen to be a servant, has sold themselves in to the service of that particular individual. And that's what we have done. God did not force us. He called us. We accepted the call. And by accepting the call and accepting the name of Jesus Christ as our Savior, is us being buried with Him and our life being hidden. As Jesus says, our life being hidden, we'll see in a minute, in Christ. That's where our identity is. 
And that's where I want us to ask. Because I think before we even get into the idea of making sure that our faith is, in, is working and is, is, is taking action and is dictating our obedience and dictating our ethics, before we can even ask that question, we have to just come to the conclusion and say, where is my identification? What is it with? Who is it with? And first and foremost, is it with Jesus and the Father? Because that is the primary thing that we have to ask before we start talking about the ethics of our faith. Matthew 6, verse 24, just to kind of encapsulate this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon is an Aramaic word that describes possessions or money. We've always typically heard it in, in relation to money, but it doesn't just have to mean money. It can mean anything that we're grabbing hold to. And we have a hard time giving up. It can mean any of those things. It can mean a, a hobby. It can mean something, maybe even a job. And, and of course, I'm never going to tell someone that their job is, is not good for them. But sometimes you can maybe work in a job that's not good for your family, not good for your health, not good for your spiritual life. But maybe you've made an idol of it. There's so many things that we can make an idol of. And it doesn't just have to be possessions and money. So the sentiment is clear. There's no such thing as a double life Christian. Identifying with Christ and God the Father means we are servants of them and them alone above all else. So in conclusion to this first message, the ethics of faith, looking at our identity, just bringing out, kind of scratching the, the surface, I do want to kind of point out that most of the messages in this series will not be like this. We won't have to cover the background material. It will be much more getting into the, the heart of the message of the book of James. Okay? I do have some homework for you, though. And that homework is up to you. I do encourage you. It's not much. But between now and March the 4th, read James, the first chapter, verses 1 through 18. And that's your homework.